0: Universal access to basic health care, whose responsibility? On the assumption that that question has gotten your full attention, we invite you to pursue the elusive answer with us here at the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. Leading us through the maze of this major issue facing our society is Samuel O. Thier, MD, president of the Institute of Medicine, National Academy of Sciences. Dr. Thier is past Sterling Professor and chairman of the Department of Internal Medicine, Yale University School of Medicine. He has served as president, American Federation of Clinical Research, Chairman, American Board of Internal Medicine, and is a master, American College of Physicians, as well as a fellow, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. To set the stage the more for today's topic, universal access to basic health care, whose responsibility? Allow me, Donald Meisel, minister here at Westminster and moderator of these forums, To quote briefly from Time Magazine for May 7th of this year, quote, If the U.S. health care system were laid out on the operating table, its condition would be rated critical and worsening. Through the country, although the country has physicians with unsurpassed training, its health care delivery is among the most expensive, least efficient, and least equitable in the developing and developed world. Of the industrialized nations, the U.S. ranks 17th in life expectancy and an appalling 20th in preventing infant mortality. Medical costs have soared from $75 billion in 1970 to $600 billion last year, using up more than 10% of the gross national product. And while many citizens receive exemplary care, many others, mostly poor women and children and the unemployed, do not. About 50 million Americans have inadequate medical insurance, and as many as 37 million have none at all. So, there we have it. Dr. Thier, where do we go from here? Welcome to Westminster.
1: Thank you very much. The question of where we go from here uh, is not one that will be readily answered. Though the answers are abundant, we can hardly pick up a newspaper or a Time magazine without reading something about the issue that we're going to discuss. We have been debating this for some time. We are now being pressed closer and closer to a time and where there is a sense of crisis pushing us to act. It reminds me, to keep things a bit light, of the story of the animal football game that's played in the jungle each fall. The animals choose up two sides, the red and the blue. The only thing important in the choice is which team gets the elephant, because he's a little hard to stop when he gets the football. They choose, and this year the red team gets the elephant. And each time they get the ball, they hand it to the elephant. He goes clomping through the line and scores. And at halftime, it's 42 to nothing, red team. At the halftime, the blue team is sitting nervously, and the centipede comes up to the coach, and he said, Coach, put me in. Coach looks at the centipede and said, What can you do? He said, Put me in. So the coach puts the centipede in. The second half begins. The red team hands the ball to the elephant. He goes ahead. The centipede gets up ahead of steam, hits the elephant, knocks him down, knocks him out of the game. The blue team goes on to win. The coach is flabbergasted. He comes up to the centipede and he said, that was spectacular. He said, but where were you in the first half? And He said, I was putting on my shoes. (laughs) I think we've had enough time to put on our shoes on access to health care, and it is now the second half. And we had better begin to act. I think the issue was laid out well for you. We have the highest expenditures of any country per capita unmatched by health status improvement. I think it's important, though, to be clear that when we're talking about health status, life expectancy, infant mortality, that we recognize that our country really is two countries. We actually, if you take those who are covered for health care and reasonably well to do, have life expectancies and infant mortalities quite as good as the best of any countries. And if you take those who are uncovered, we are really quite poor, matching developing countries, not even being listed with the developed countries. It is really not so much the differences in status, but the evidence of inequality in the system that that brings out. We have, of all systems, perhaps the most healthcare technology though lots of it is unproven in its use. We know more and more about what preventive strategies work, but we don't support their implementation. And when we think about system reform, we must keep in mind that we have financing which is not in the same site and does not control delivery, which sites of delivery do not usually control the practitioners of care, and the patients operate completely separate from this, frequently not directly or not to a great extent directly invested in the total costs. This is a system which is not working the way it ought to. And to illustrate the problems and to try and get to how we ought to modify this, I wish to deal with the access to care question. I will use this to illustrate much of what I think is a problem and much of what I think we need to consider. It is worth starting with access to care because it highlights our confusion about who we are as a society. And if we don't know who we are and what we really think, but talk in platitudes, we're not going to solve our problem. I would like to trace the roots of the problem for you, if I could. I would like to define what I think are simple principles of health care reform, define some options for choosing the system, and then see where we end up. The dimensions of the problem, as you heard, are something in the range of 30 to 35 million uninsured and something in that range of people inadequately insured. But I want you to recognize that that is not the definition of inadequate access. Access means getting available appropriate care. You can have adequate health insurance but be living in a rural setting in which there simply are no providers. Or you can, as happens in some countries, in some cities in this country, you can be a poor Hispanic woman, teenager who is pregnant with money available to cover your care if only you will fill out this 26 page form in English. Now we have to understand that there are barriers to access which are more than dollars. And it is important as we go through not to drive every question to dollars until we have talked about principles and values. Let me start out, then, with what I think are the roots of our problem. We tend to view ourselves as an egalitarian society. We are sensitive to the point of being sentimental. We will spend $6 million at the drop of a hat to find three down balloonists in the Atlantic Ocean. But we will not transfer those funds to be sure that 30 or 40 percent of inner-city kids get vaccinated against diseases which are readily preventable. We keep talking about health being a basic human service, but I don't believe that we really believe that. I believe that this conflicts with another view, which is a view of what I call economic Darwinism, which says that those who are poor are poor because of their own fault. They aren't trying. They deserve to be poor. There's no such thing as circumstance or bad chance. Why do I think that's true? Well, I got a Christmas card a few years ago, which was sent out by an economist from Princeton, Dr. Reinhardt, and it was a wonderful card. It started out with a set of questions. It was a, it was, these were real facts from polls. Should all American citizens have health care? of U.S. citizens, yes. Whose responsibility is it to see that everybody has health care? 75%, the government. Would you be willing to pay more taxes to provide that universal coverage? 65%, yes. Would you be willing to pay more than $50 more a year in taxes for that privilege? 20%, yes. Merry Christmas. Those data illustrate to me that there is a strong sense that we do not view health care as a right. We view it as largesse, which we provide to others when we are taken care of. And unless we can address that, what I think is a different value from what we enunciate, I think it becomes hard to get people to buy into changes in the system. Now, I want to trace for you two trends to illustrate why I believe this is true. First, let me trace the hospital systems in this country, which is where much of the health care costs have been driven up. I do not mean that the hospitals are the only causes of cost, but it is a clear area. And I want to show you what happened. When we began the evolution of hospitals in this country, we began with almshouses. Almshouses were places where paupers lived. They weren't even referred to as people who lived there. They were referred to as inmates. When these people lived in these houses for the poor, it was clear that they had a higher incidence of illness. And so it became of interest to bring health care into these almshouses. And they brought health care in for the acutely and chronically ill who required care. And this began to be a form of hospital we confused, at the very beginning, indigency and sickness. And we, from the very beginning, saw people as worthy poor or unworthy paupers. We had a sense that there was culpability in their pauperism, and that was used as a rationale for frugality in providing services in these almshouses. In the 19th century, we began to develop hospitals. When we developed hospitals, we tried to distinguish them from the almshouses, which really were by that time a form of hospital. The way we distinguished them was we said the hospitals were for those who had treatable illness and who could afford care, which meant either they were the rich or those who worked for the rich. We enforced that so vigorously that we kept from hospitals people who were illegitimately pregnant, people who were alcoholics, people who were syphilitics. We also excluded from hospitals in those days chronic and geriatric illness because we didn't define them as being remedial. Hospitals promised categorical and technical care to those worthy and capable of benefiting from it. Notice also that in this focus on remedial disease, social services, family services, nutritional services fared less well than traditional medical care and were given then and have since that time had a lower position in the hospital hierarchy and in the healthcare system. By the 1920s, we had evolved a form of technologically advanced care in the hospital, which was available only to the poor or to the rich. And since by that time it was clear that it really was benefit to being cared for, there was clamor from the middle class for a solution which turned out to be semi-private facilities supported by the growth of third-party insurance. And that insurance reinforced everything that had led up to it To where we were, it paid for technologically intensive remedial care, and did not attend to issues of chronic care, aging, or any of the other supportive services that were needed. Reimbursement reinforced the dichotomy between the care systems. And if you want me to illustrate what I mean by this dichotomy, consider, at the present moment, that Medicare and tax advantages for people who have mortgages are middle-class rights, while Medicaid and housing subsidies are largesse given to the unworthy in our system. Now, unless we face that kind of value system and address it and modify it, I believe that our chances of providing universal access will not be good. World War II began a movement toward universal access, which was fueled by the passage of Medicare and Medicaid in 1965. That's a form of health insurance, a form of legislation that was described by somebody as being the only legislation ever put forward entirely by its opponents. People were so nervous about what it would be that in order to get it passed, they let the people who didn't want it write it. Nonetheless, It provided care to the older population, and it reduced the number of uncovered in this country down at the beginning of the 1980s to about 20 million. On the other hand, in the 80s, we began to find that we did not provide as much coverage. We began to find an increase in homelessness. We began to notice that the homeless were ill. We provided shelters for the homeless. We decided that in the shelters they needed health care, so we've put medical care into the homeless shelters, and we have recreated the almshouses that we had a hundred years ago that we thought we had grown above, and we have fallen back to there. The second trend I want to trace for you is financing. Financing of medical care was simple fee-for-service, Few people know the history of this. In the early part of this century, the AMA came forward and asked for universal national health insurance. The unions said no. They said it would give the government too much control over the employees. In the 1930s, labor and the government came back and said, okay, we agree, it would be good to have universal health insurance. The medical profession said no. Then we came finally to the 1960s and the compromise of Medicare and Medicaid. But notice that Medicare is a health benefit and Medicaid is a welfare program. The result, as I said, was coverage for more people and with private insurance growing we were doing reasonably well except the costs were going up so fast that in the 1970s a series of events occurred and into the 80s which began to restrict coverage. We put in prepayment plans we moved people to shorter hospitalization and out of hospitals we stopped cost shifting between those who could not afford care and those who had insurance and the result was the number of uninsured rose which is where we are now and we skewed the services continuously because even when we cut back and modified insurance we paid only for those things we could see and you can see in operation you can't see a preventive service so here we are with a large number of uninsured population. That uninsured population includes a very high percentage of people who work, who have children, but who cannot purchase insurance, or who gamble that they won't need it, and then, of course, are bankrupted if they do. This system has also forced a whole series of hidden taxation in which, when the people do go to the hospital, Their care, if they can't afford it, is paid for by transfer from other insurance if it's permitted, and by asking the hospital and the medical profession to absorb uncompensated care. Well, a number of remedies have come forward to deal with this. People like Kennedy and Waxman have tried to close the gap by mandating that the employers of the small group of people who are uninsured and employed at low level will be covered. The problem, of course, is that the way the insurance system is operated, it is no longer an insurance system. An insurance system is a system in which you take people who have a risk of an event which will be very expensive, and then you spread the cost of that risk. But that's not what our insurance is anymore. Our insurance system says that we simply look at how much it might cost for a population of people, and then we charge them for that money. And the insurance companies basically are a claims payment system. They move the money from one part of the system to the other. And in so doing, it becomes more profitable if the people that they're moving money for don't get sick. So it makes it better if they can keep those who are sick out of that system. And then those who are at highest risk are charged more and more and more money, which is exactly the opposite of the concept of insurance. So our insurance system is no longer really operating. And closing the gap by having that group who are lowest paid by people who are at the closest margin as employers pay for the highest cost, I don't think will work. We've tried to reduce costs by having caps of what we'll expend. My guess is that we will continue to try that. We've tried redistributing costs by moving services from inpatient to outpatient settings, and that works a bit. We've tried to push for an investment concept. It's been very hard. One of the concepts we've pushed for is to have prenatal care provided for everybody. Because we know that a dollar spent on prenatal care will save three and a half dollars in the first year of life. But the person who saves the three and a half dollars is not the one that pays the one dollar, and the person who pays the one dollar doesn't want to pay it. And so the investment system doesn't work terribly well. We have incentives. They may work and we are having the opportunity to shift from medical to social services we have enormous expenditures in caring for the elderly we've converted aging into a disease I don't think that's correct I don't think aging is a disease it's the most universal of biologic processes everybody ages surely as people age they do accumulate illness and it would be nice to have that cared for but if in fact you had somebody who did not have heart disease or Alzheimer's or cancer what would happen would they live forever I don't think so we would still have the aging problem but the kinds of needs those individuals would have would be needs for transportation and housing and company and nutrition and our system is not organized to provide that and I think we're going to have to consider modifying the system well that's the bad news What's the way in which we're going to get from here to anywhere? Let me start with some principles for reform. First principle that I would enunciate is that health care, including preventive services, prenatal care, diet, and aging are universal needs. We all have or hope to have those needs. When we provide for those needs, it enhances society as a whole in terms of the quality of the society in which we live and the productivity of the society and its members. Therefore, I reason that society has an obligation to provide access to an adequate level of care. The position of the health professions in this. Health professions have a complex set of responsibilities. They provide services that are compensated as though they were a business. But they are not a business if they are a profession. If they are a profession, they have a social contract with society to behave in a professional fashion, which means that they are trustees of the body of knowledge of medicine, which was given to them. They didn't make it. A physician doesn't own the knowledge. It was generations have given it to the person, and it is the physician's responsibility to pass it on to the next generation and to hold it in trust for the society. If physicians are trustees, of medical knowledge and skills for society, then in my reasoning it holds that they cannot logically withhold those services when needed by society. And therefore, not acting in the primary interest of the patient in time of need is an unacceptable position for the health profession. The trust function also implies maintenance of trust through avoidance of conflict of interest. If the patient does not know in going to the physician whether the physician is committed to the physician's employer or to the patient, then something is wrong with the system. The patient is the primary responsibility, and the well-being of the patient overrides any interest of the physician, and if that is not part of the system, then we are in serious trouble. That trusteeship also requires stewardship of the resources. That means that the The resources that we're given to expend, the technology, the dollars that we commit must be used in the most effective fashion possible. If we do not see that these are used in the most effective fashion possible, then we are not meeting our responsibility. The clear obligation is to forego useless activities and excessive or inappropriate use of medical facilities or medical technology. If you follow or agree with those three simple principles, then logically we can proceed to say that we could have a system of universal access to basic health care. We cannot provide total access for everybody to everything that could be done by the health care system. We must, therefore, be able to define what basic health care means, and in that definition, we must begin a process of modification of expectations and understanding to include more in the way of preventive services. The process that we need to follow is to keep people healthy and functional for as long into their life as is possible. That is the goal. If we follow that goal, then we will be defining basic health care needs which can be modified over time. To define that, it means we need to know what works and what does not work. At the present moment, you could come in and have available to you for a coronary artery problem a medication which costs $200 and unplugs the vessel, $2,000 and unplugs the vessel, a balloon which unplugs the vessel, a laser which unplugs the vessel, or surgery. And I would hold that the ability to define which of those choices makes what sense under what circumstances for which patient is not known to us we don't have those data we have not as we have introduced more and more many cases extremely useful new approaches and technologies we have not done adequate assessment to know what of those are most useful and most effective and what should be foregone and so the system that i talk about requires a major program of the assessment of technology and of practice. It requires fair compensation. We must get rid of the hidden taxes, put them on the table, and look at them. It is not fair to say that you cannot afford $30 billion additional costs for the care of all the indigent without recognizing that $15 billion of that is already being paid but is buried in uncompensated care. It is not fair to do that and not look at what we're paying now that we would save on if people were treated sooner, or if diseases were avoided. And then we need, I think, a shared economic responsibility. By a shared economic responsibility, I believe that we have to have a guarantee for those who are most vulnerable that they will receive care. We have, in this country, put Medicaid in as a welfare program's mean-tested people, and, in many states, allowed the states to opt out of the program, so that people are simply not covered in those states. The federal government's responsibility, as I understand it, is to provide equity across states. When states are in competition one with the other, and they need to cut corners to make their economies move or not move, the vulnerable and those without voice are the ones who are hurt, and those are the same who do not have access. The states cannot be expected to meet both of those competitive and those access needs and the federal government must guarantee a minimum level of basic care which nobody may leave. The private sector and the individual have major responsibilities in this. The major responsibilities of the private sector are to continue a. Mechanism of support, it seems to me, for those who are employed. And one could debate how that went on. And individuals, I think, if they're going to be insured for catastrophic costs, might bear more of some of the minor costs so that they have some sense of what's happening in the system so that their ability to debate and complain and argue and use the system is based upon some capacity to sense it. Right now, many of the people use services without having any idea of what they're actually causing to be expended or causing to be removed from the system. My own personal view is that the way society is organized, the primary responsibility for this lies with the profession. Profession has a responsibility, in my mind, to have a code of ethics with a component of service to others, to set and enforce standards, and to value performance above reward. It's a definition of a profession in my mind, and we have not met those criteria as well as we should. And if we do not meet them, it puts the social contract at risk. If the social contract goes to risk, then we risk having federal solutions to the kinds of problems we're talking about, which I do not see as being useful. I think what will likely happen if we really don't act in our own interests, is that there will be an attempt under greater and greater pressure to bring in component parts from different parts of the world, a little piece from Canada, a little piece from Germany, a little piece from Japan. We built the most advanced healthcare system in the world in this country, the most sophisticated. We didn't make it equitable, but we darn well ought to be capable of using enough imagination to reform it and to move it to the next level where it would serve our people better, which brings us to the choices of how we reform it. There basically are two. We can do it by increments or by system reform. Incremental reform is what we did with Medicare. We started Medicare, and we said we would gradually ask pop- add populations to the coverage. That was nearly 30 years ago. We haven't added anybody to the coverage. Increments, in my mind, don't work very well if you don't know where you're going. If you don't have a vision of what the system ought to look like, then incrementing changes can take you off in almost any direction. Nonetheless, the next thing you will see will be another incremental attempt by our government to provide coverage for some uncovered, either a Kennedy-Waxman type of program or you will see coverage of maternal and child health, which is inexpensive and a very good investment. But it will not deal with the universal access problem, and I doubt will ever get us there. I think that the system reform is going to be necessary. I think it should start at the state levels because the federal government can't carry it forward, and besides it's only at the state level you can tell who is and isn't getting care, and you can guarantee that you know what's happening and the quality is being provided. At the moment, a totally private response to this seems out of the question. A totally public response I think would be cumbersome and would not meet the regional and state needs and therefore in this country given our culture and heritage a combined public-private sector with protection provided by the federal government for the vulnerable will be I think what we do. We are now looking at a deficit. We are still looking at the deficit even after Congress has acted and we're going to be looking at it for some time. My sense is that there are only a few very large-ticket items which are politically vulnerable. Among them is Medicare, and in going after those vulnerable items, I think we are likely to produce reductions in access for the elderly over the next several years unless we have a system reform. You have a commission in this state, and the commission that you have in this state is grappling with how to provide universal reform and I think very wisely from a lot of what I've heard. But I read an editorial in one of your papers here which took me back about a decade and a half in which it said do not do anything to the system until you can guarantee that you can control the costs. That's backwards thinking. If all you try and do is control the costs, You have no ability to really direct what it is you want to purchase. You end up making skewed decisions, pushing resources into reimbursement programs which buy services you don't want because you can monitor them. You need to start the other way around with a set of principles and ethical standards and values. And then you have to decide who will pay in that system, and in that kind of consideration, one has to consider not only who will contribute, but who will let go. There are components of our health care system in which my profession, I believe, is receiving compensations in excess of what is reasonable. One needn't have a payment system which continues to perpetuate that. A payment system which says that we will pay, but you will take less as well within reason because you're getting fair compensation for your activities is one that we need to have. In summary, then, I think that we have a situation in which we are, to some extent, embarrassed. We are, along with South Africa, one of two industrialized nations that does not guarantee access to some care for all of its citizens. We spend more than any other country. We do not do as well. How can we take those resources and buy with them an understandable system of care which provides for better maintenance of health as well as curative procedures? I think we do that by the principles I've established. The responsibility, in simple terms, is everybody's. We have allowed ourselves in the last 25 to 30 years to think that because of Medicare and Medicaid, The responsibility is the government's. I don't think that's where the seat of the most imagination and flexibility lies. I think it lies in communities such as yours and in others like this around the country. And I'm excited to see that there are programs and commissions beginning to grapple at the state and local level with how to improve this situation. Thank you.
0: Dr. Thier, the overarching rubric for these forums over time has been voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective, and it seems to me you have filled the bill magnificently. You have made us look at at underlying questions about, you've made us look at value questions, questions of responsibility, stewardship of one's talent. Uh, embellished with a a sense of history. I I find that all extremely helpful as I'm sure this audience has and we thank you. During this brief pause, uh, those of you who must leave the uh, audience may do so. Uh, More to the point, please pass any questions that you filled out on those yellow cards that are in the pew card racks and pass them to the aisles and uh, they will be picked up by by the ushers. Let me uh, remind or alert the uh, radio audience to the fact that you too may uh, submit your questions by calling the following number, 332-3421, 332-3421. For those in the uh, radio audience who have tuned in late, be reminded that uh, you have been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Church in downtown Minneapolis, that our speaker has been Dr. Samuel O. Thier, who is president of the Institute of Medicine, National Academy of Sciences, and who has been addressing the very serious topic, universal access to basic health care, whose responsibility? Dr. Thier, we invite you at this time to return to the podium, and uh, let's uh, ask you to start fielding a few questions. One that occurs to me instantly, uh, Tell us, what is the, uh, uh, the Institute of Medicine National Academy of Science? Who, who is this entity that you oversee? Uh, the National Academy of
1: Sciences was signed into being by President Lincoln in 1863 to be a body of independent scientists who would offer analytic advice to the government on issues of science. First question they got asked back in 1863 was How do you make compasses work on metal clad ships? The Monitor and the Merrimack were going at it in those days. For heaven's sake. The group is made up of people who are selected for their accomplishments and they serve voluntarily without reimbursement to study questions that are raised initially by the government but now by the entire uh, public. And the Institute of Medicine is the medical arm of the National Academy of Sciences, has 500 active members, does not is not just doctors, it's 25% of them outside of health, law, economics, ethics, journalism, and so on. In health, it's medicine, nursing, dentistry, and allied health professions.
0: Hmm. Fascinating that it goes back to a Lincoln appointment. Before I pose the next question, let me alert uh, all of you, as I did before we went on the radio, that Medtronic, Inc. is our co-sponsor today, understandably so, given the agenda, and we thank them for their involvement and their encouragement. Uh, Let me pose this question. What is the impact of the new federal budget on the health care situation? My
1: guess is that the impact will be twofold. One is I think it will take more people in the older age population over the next few years and move some who are, are capable of affording additional insurance, make them more dependent upon uh, not being able to afford that because they'll pay more for the Medicare part of the insurance. The second thing that will happen, it's interesting, I, I just discovered that the Medicaid budget in most states is now the number two budget item. The number three budget item is education. The number one budget item is prisons, um, just for your interest. I think that what will happen is that these cuts will force more of the burden of Medicaid maintenance back onto states. And in those states who are having difficulty affording this, I think it will again mean restricted services to those who are dependent upon Medicaid. I can't see that the present attempt to reduce the deficit on the basis of those kinds of savings will not restrict
0: access still further. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, I'm not sure I can read this one all the way through, but uh, the person writing this question indicates that uh, he or she has just moved here from Oregon, which is experimenting with a radical new method of, of using Medicaid, kind of a triage system if I've if I've read accurately about it. Would you care to comment on it? Yes,
1: and it lets me raise a few questions. Oregon started out with the definition of their problem being that they had a limited budget, and they were trying to decide whether to pay for prenatal care versus whether to pay for transplantation and they concluded that the investment in prenatal care would have a much bigger payoff than the investment in transplantation. The problem was that the question was badly framed, and the profession was unfortunately quiet. Prenatal care and transplantation are both goods. They both improve the circumstance of those who benefit from them. The question should have been, Are there components of our health care system for which we are paying which do no good? And if so, can we stop those and move the money into paying for prenatal care and transplantation? They didn't ask it that way, and they got into trouble. The next thing they did was to be as honest as any state has been, and they've been brutally beaten up for that. Uh, Honesty is dangerous in some of these cases. They said, when we have a restriction in dollars, there are two ways that we can cut what we do or limit it. one is we can say everybody will get some services up to what we can afford but nobody will be left out or we can cut this way and leave a population out and nobody will know for sure what services they're getting or not getting and since we don't see them and they don't really have a political voice that's the way most localities in this country have chosen to operate the system. Oregon said they didn't want to do that. They wanted it up front as to what they could and couldn't provide. Uh, The problem was the one in evaluating the technology and practice. When it came to choosing, I think they underestimated the difficulty of figuring out what would be known useful basic health services. And so they have withdrawn their application at this point, and they are no longer attempting that program. But they've stimulated a lot of people to think, and I think that they've held a debate in town meetings, and they, have, they showed what you can do at, at the state level to at least begin to focus the question in the right direction.
0: Thank you. Another question from the audience. Was the catastrophic health insurance plan a worthwhile solution? <laughs> it depends where you're sitting.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, if you needed catastrophic coverage, it was a very worthwhile plan. It was a plan which had the capacity to provide coverage for catastrophic illness for elderly folks. It did so by requiring those in the older population who had incomes above certain levels to pay additional amounts. That is not a principle foreign to our country. Those who have more resources pay more for the services. I believe that the older population, particularly the well-to-do older population, behaved badly in this circumstance. What they did was to lobby for and remove this coverage, which they could afford to replace with other policies, but the others who were poorer in the older population simply lost the coverage. And one of the things that bothered me, because I've had this discussion with a few audiences, as that population becomes smaller relative to the older population, clamping down on services and benefits to other sectors of our population in favor of protecting to a level of, I think, not quite totally reasonable levels of support, those benefits of the elderly, I think, will be a destructive strategy. And I'm sorry
0: that we repealed that. Next question from the floor: The advancements in medical science have given our society such wonders as balloon uh, uh, angioplasty at a cost of five or eight thousand dollars. How do we define basic health care in view of the fact that such a procedure can literally mean life or death to an individual? Well. I'll probably be out of town before this is rebroadcast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there is no reason for that procedure to cost five to eight thousand dollars. That's the answer to the question. That procedure in terms of training needs, equipment needs, facilities needs, can be done for far less. The price was set basically to be just slightly less than the price that was being paid for the surgery it replaced, Hmm. not to reflect the actual cost of doing the procedure. Too much of our reimbursement system starts with the concept that in order to afford what we want to do, we will accept the present charges as they are built into the system. And I've asked physician groups the following question. If you were going to do a procedure on a patient, let us say a colonoscopy, which costs $700, And it was only reimbursed at $300, but was indicated, would you not do it? Would you say, I'm not going to do it? I don't believe that. I think that we are into a very tricky kind of negotiation here, uh, where, again, closer to complete honesty has to be the basis from which we debate this, or we end up with a system trying to figure out, how to come up with enough dollars to pay $8,000 when that's not the right question.
0: In your judgment, which industrial nations or nation best meets your principles of providing adequate access to medical care? And a a collateral question, uh, how effective is the health care system in Canada? Let me start
1: with the health care system in Canada is really quite adequate. Everybody can see a physician. Uh, People can eventually get needed services. The ease of getting those services is not as great as it would be in this country for those who can afford the services, but it's a lot easier than it is for those who can afford the services in this country. There is not the same degree of availability of high technology. There are waiting lists of a sort that we don't have. But those are the trade-offs in these kinds of systems. There are different systems around the world which are so different because of the differences in cultures that it is very hard to compare. I spent some time working in the British health system. They provide excellent initial, primary, and ongoing care. I would not compare their intensive, complex care to ours in terms of how well it's done. On the other hand, they've made decisions, and they're paying a lot less for their healthcare system, and their people are living as long as ours, and their young children are surviving better than ours. So one has to ask what it is we really want to have. The question, I think, is driven by the historical perspective that medicine, initially, took on acute problems, pneumonia, appendicitis, things that were sudden, could be lethal, and we cured them. And we put everything into the model of things that could be cured, and that you saw in the evolution of the hospitals. But the fact is that as we were able to take care of those infectious diseases and improve sanitation and so on, the illnesses that we had to deal with were more and more chronic illnesses which didn't get better and for which our strategies of acute intervention don't work. And so when you have an acute intervention strategy that's highly expensive and highly intense, which only gets you a marginal benefit, that becomes not a very good investment for the system. On the other hand, it's an absolute part of our culture. People expect it. So in the changes, we're going to require some good public debate and discussion about changing expectations of what we really want from the health care system. If we want exactly what we have now, it's very expensive.
0: Here's a question from the radio audience. How can acute care be better linked to long-term care in the continuum of care for the elderly?
1: If there were more readily available Primary or comprehensive care that might be family practice that might be internal medicine such that individuals were rewarded for spending time with patients acting as their navigators through a complex system and as advisors so the patients could make sensible choices then you would have the capacity to realize what this person is asking for of having somebody who would be available for the acute problems would be the person responsible for negotiating the approaches to the chronic problems and long-term care. My sense is that some primary care provider is essential to anybody who wants to be able to negotiate the system. The problem is that we have penalized economically those individuals who choose to make their careers providing that kind of service. You can by taking out a cataract or by doing a colonoscopy or a bunch of other things, get reimbursed at several-fold what a person would get for spending an hour with you, helping you understand your situation and the system. Uh, We're going to have to change the reimbursement system, or physicians, being as rational as other people, will pursue the resources where they go.
0: Thank you again from the radio audience, is there a problem with malpractice abroad? I don't know whether abroad means within this country, uh, in the land, or whether they're also talking about that issue as it pertains to other countries. But uh, either way or both.
1: Um, Yes. (laughs) Uh, We obviously have a major problem with malpractice in this country. It is not a continuous, it is a cyclical problem. We keep going through cycles. We hit a peak about four or five years ago. We are coming down off that peak now. There's nothing I've seen that's changed within the tort system uh, or the trial lawyer's approach to their quality control of health care, which suggests that we won't have another peak. There are problems of liability in other countries, but they are far less than they are in this country. We are so far the leader in this kind of turmoil that uh, the problems of the other countries really pale by comparison. Um, How we get out of this, I don't know. It seems to me some better quality control systems of our own within the profession would help, but I really don't think the tort system has been demonstrated to be an extremely effective quality control mechanism, nor does it even help very significant segments of the population who are deserving of some kind of compensation. So I won't say who I think the major beneficiaries of the tort system are, but I don't think it's the patients or the
0: doctors. (laughs) Radio audience question. Shouldn't we require people to have health insurance just as they are required for car insurance?
1: The answer to that is is yes, if you can make it available at an affordable level. Mm -hmm. And that was the point I was making at the end when I said that everybody is responsible. Uh, Yes, I believe everybody should have health insurance. They should be able to negotiate whether their employer will pay a portion of or all of that insurance or whether they will pay it or whether they will receive it because they have no income through a risk pool of some sort. But yes, everybody should have to have the insurance.
0: Um, That's all I'd respond. Thank you. Tell us about the debate between the American College of Physicians and the American Medical Association regarding their respective approaches to whose responsibility question. Well. You
1: know, that's a, it's an interesting situation. Um, Policy tends to be approached from an adversarial view. Uh, You have to sort of, if you believe something, it must be something you don't believe. And I'm struck that the College of Physicians and the AMA have a number of areas of common agreement, yet the public discussion has been on the areas of disagreement. That's not a constructive way of getting from where we are to where we need to be. They both agree that everybody should have access. They both agree that we need an improvement in the organization and availability of services. The AMA tends to, at least in my perspective, come at it from saying that you need to be willing to invest the resources to provide that The College of the Physicians is saying, let's agree on the values and the principles, and then let's figure out how we will afford that. It may not be necessary to just add resources, it may be necessary to redistribute resources. It is in the debate over how one affords these programs that I think there is a difference, not in
0: what one wishes to have available to patients. A very basic question. Millions of children go to bed hungry in our country. Over 10% of our population is illiterate. I think that's low, actually. Admitting those problems, or aren't those problems, even more fundamental than universal health care? The answer to that is certainly yes.
1: Um, There isn't any question, in my mind, that if you were to choose between the best investment in your country, education would be a more important investment than would be health care. The view, though, is complicated by the fact that they're not unlinked. We have a set of state and federal policies which take some poor little child and break them up into that part of the kid who's educated, and that part of the kid who's fed, and that part of the kid who is immunized, And that's one child. And these programs frequently compete with each other and are complex and, to some extent, wasteful. It's crystal clear that a mother who has prenatal care tends to have a larger child. That child tends to have less problems in the first year of life. If the child is nourished, they grow better. If they grow better and develop better, their capacity to learn is improved. When they reach school, they are in a circumstance in which they can be, then, educated more effectively and their health sustained through programs of immunization and nutrition. What we really need to stop doing is to thinking of everybody in terms of compartments and cabinet positions and think about programs and, and things that we're trying to accomplish maybe reorganize the way in which we do things a bit. But in that I would suggest that they are linked because an unhealthy child won't grow and learn but I think the, the fact that education is now third on most of the state's budgets is a bad sign for this country.
0: Uh, perhaps the last question. Uh, what can you tell us about the direction of congressional committees dealing with these issues? Are they, in your opinion, making progress? <laughs>
1: when you don't know where you're going, any direction is progress. Uh. <laughs> I think that they are making progress in some areas. They are, uh, everybody, the President, Secretary of HHS, and the Congress agrees that childhood protection and capacity to develop is an important uh, to the future of this country, and they are going to do something in that area. So I think something will happen there. Your Senator has uh, been active in trying to introduce some insurance reform which would allow some of the kinds of changes that I've said I think are necessary to occur, how successful that will be, uh, we'll just have to see over the next, uh, the next period of time. Um, I think that there is uh, going to be a debate, but probably not before the next national election, on what to do about health care. I do not think that Congress will do a lot in this area. On the other hand, Governor Booth Gardner of the state of Washington, who's head of the National Conference of Governors this year, has indicated that this is his and his governor's number one priority, and that they will deal in some way with how to improve access to care. And that will be done at the state level. So if you want to know which space to watch for
0: new innovation in the next two or three years, Watch the states. Thank you, Dr. Thier. Let's hope and pray that as a product of what you have shared with us, we'll all put on our shoes and be the combined centipede that overcomes the elephant. Thank you. <laughs>